0: Isaac Morehouse welcome to the podcast where we discuss education entrepreneurship big ideas how to put them into practice in the real world and above all how to live free you may have heard me talk on this show before about the valley of the shadow of debt that's right Most young people, they get to the edge of a precipice. They see across the other side, opportunity. They see, they're hearing all the time about the amazing things being done, businesses being started, apps being built, software, hardware, you name it. There's opportunity everywhere and businesses are hungry. They see it, but they're looking over a canyon. They're looking across college chasm. They look down to the bottom of that chasm and there's all these colleges and universities and they're supposed to go way down there into the muck, into the valley of the shadow of debt and get stuck for five plus years on average and walk away with an average of $37,000 in debt. Oh, and not only that, but 62% of graduates are either unemployed or working in jobs that didn't require a degree anyway. So after five years and $37,000 of debt that you can never get rid of, you're working in a job that you could have gotten without it, something's not right. Skip the valley of the shadow of debt. Praxis builds a bridge directly to those opportunities right now today. And if you're already in that valley, don't worry. We can help you too. We can throw you a lifeline. We can pull you up right now. If you already graduated college, don't think about grad school until you've gotten into the real world. If you're a couple years in and you're bored Don't fall prey to the sunk cost fallacy and think that because you've wasted some time and money, you've got to waste more. Get out now, get into an amazing career at an amazing startup, learn more about yourself and the world than you ever could down in that valley. Praxis is the bridge to get you from where you are to a life that you love. Our mission, our why, the reason we exist is to help young people discover and do what makes them come alive. And we can do it better, faster, cheaper than anything else. DiscoverPraxis.com. Check it out today. Today's guest is Tom Woods. Tom Woods is the New York Times bestselling author of 12 books he is a history well he was a history professor. He has a PhD in history from Columbia University undergraduate from Harvard uh, and he is also the host of the Tom Wood Show. He does a podcast five days a week. Tom Wood Show he's also on the Contra Krugman excuse me Contra Krugman podcast with Robert Murphy where they debunk uh, Paul Krugman's New York Times columns. Tom is incredibly busy. He has liberty in the classroom. He has, as I mentioned, the books. He's got articles. He's got ebooks. newsletter you can subscribe to at tomwoods.com. He has built a sort of empire of ideas, if you will. He's an intellectual, an academic, but an entrepreneur who is selling, spreading his ideas as a business, getting individuals who are interested to pay for his content. And he has turned himself into an intellectual entrepreneur, something that I think is just so cool, so inspiring. In this episode, Tom talks about things that he has never shared publicly before. He talks about some struggles he's had, some of the haters that he's experienced in his life, things that he held on to, grudges, how he dealt with that, how he got over that. He talks about not just his ideas, but the business side of transitioning into being an entrepreneur, of having that pressure. He talks about his struggle with being a workaholic. This is a really great interview. He generously gave me an hour. We actually went over. It was like an hour and 20 minutes. We had some audio problems. We had to disconnect and reconnect a couple times. And Tom generously gave his time. And this was one of those interviews that I absolutely loved doing. It just flowed. Tom was very honest and transparent talking about uh, his life and and what he's sort of gone through. So I hope you enjoy it. Go to TomWoods.com to check out his stuff. Check out his podcast and iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere. Tom has content all over the web. He's really good at SEO. uh, So if you Google his name, you will find great stuff. I really hope you enjoy this interview with Tom Woods. Tom Woods, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Isaac. Let me tell you something. I have not been interviewed by anybody for I don't know other than Ron Paul but you know if he asked you you know to to eat dirt I'd I'd do it <laughs> but basically for about a year I've been trying to I've been trying to reorient myself after a, a real, really bad workaholic binge I went on. So I've been saying no to everybody, but I said yes to Isaac Morehouse. I just want you to know that.
0: I am very flattered by that. I, I have always had this fascination with people who do interviews. I always want to interview them. So I'm really glad uh, you said yes and I got the chance. So I want, to, I want to start at the beginning, the beginning of a day. What motivates you to get up? Every morning, is there is there some sort of core motivation in your life that that keeps you going and keeps you doing the things that you do?
1: Well, sure. I mean, it's it's largely family first, and I'll tell you something. You're talking to somebody who, while you know, when I was growing up, I I really didn't think much of children at all. You know, (laughs) they they have runny noses, they're screaming all the time. You know, you've seen one, you've seen them all. A typical man kind of attitude toward children. I was an only child. I had no experience with siblings. And now I have these five girls, and I just can't imagine how impoverished my life would be without them. And it's a new adventure every day, and they're getting older to the point where uh, my three oldest are, well, one's uh, just about to turn 13, and then 11, and then 10. So they're at that point where you can start to have intelligent conversations with them. And to sit there and watch them you know think about important ideas for the first time is thrilling or or to be there when they for the first time hear a song that you love or see a movie that means something to you and you experience their first experience of it with them it's it's great and and every day i don't know what the new thing for today is going to be so that that is wonderful but also i'm fortunate in that what i do is so varied every day that every day really is this may sound corny but A new adventure for me. I don't know what interesting opportunity is going to be sitting in my inbox Hmm. or what topic I'm going to want to write my email about today or, or whatever, but it's always something fun. And I get to talk to interesting people and learn interesting things every day. And I think, by the way, about my own father who died actually 20 years ago this year, he was a forklift operator in a food warehouse and there wasn't any air conditioning and it was just an awful, awful thing. And he worked overtime a lot. And that was not a job that he got up and looked forward to. So I don't ever take for granted that I I wake up happy about my life and happy about what I do every day.
0: Is that something that you, from an early age, sort of deliberately set out to create a life where you were doing work that you enjoyed, where you didn't have the same experience your father had? Or is this something that's just sort of happened uh, organically as you've pursued your interests?
1: No, I've always wanted to have this. I didn't know it would take quite this path, but I remember this was one of the things my father said to me, is that someday you're going to have a job that you get up and love to go to. And, of course, Hmm. he meant that by contrast with himself. He even sat me down when I was seven years old. Seven years old, I was upset about some trivial thing. And he sat me down, he said, you know— I am going to send you to Harvard University someday because you're going to get in and I'm going to send you there. And I don't know how I'm going to pay for it, but somehow I will. Yeah, and, and were you're you, going were you
0: bookish and interested in ideas even at that oh, young
1: age? She- Oh come on! It was ridiculous. You know, <laughs> by age nine, you know, I'm arguing with my fourth grade teacher about the election of Reagan, and, and it was it was a, it was a horror show. Yeah, I I totally I was reading super early like before I was three. Super early, I read all the time, so he could see that. And of course, I did get into Harvard, as it turned out, and and he did live to see that, which was a, a thrilling thing. But he he it was that that kind of drove me on. I thought, yeah, of course, it would, wouldn't it be wonderful that you could wake up and be happy about what you're doing. And I've, I've always felt that way when I was at the Mises Institute or when I was in academia, I've never felt like I have to do drudgery. Mm. And that's a, it's a credible blessing.
0: There's, I I find there's sort of two potentially dangerous um, camps when it comes to, you know, being happy uh, or, or finding fulfillment in your work. There are those who, don't ever give themselves permission to do that. They feel like that's just not an option for them. And they, and they assume that it's off the table, that they can never really you know, be doing work that they enjoy. And then there are those who feel like the world owes it to them to, to give them work that makes them happy. And I think trying to navigate that in between of doing things that are really hard and it's going to take hard work to get to a point where you enjoy what you do and it's going to take a lot of exploration and, and a lot of uh, trial and error and challenges but that it is possible trying to maintain that balance I think can be can be tricky sometimes
1: it is it is and it's true that a lot of the things I've done have been quite challenging and there was no guarantee of success and I haven't succeeded at everything certainly I've had a couple of books that turned out to be turkeys I liked them you know <laughs> so I got some personal satisfaction out of them that's all I got but there have been things that I couldn't know were going to be successful that have turned out to be tremendously successful and yeah so it was at the same time uh, you know it's exciting to do and there's a you know when there's the risk of failure that excitement always has a an edge to it and that but that makes the thrill of success all the all the greater but yeah i know people you know we we uh, for a long time went to a parish that was rather poor. And I met an awful lot of people who were in precarious employment situations. But, you know, I met people who were unemployed. They would be offered a job at Panera Bread or something, and they would indignantly turn it down because it's beneath them. And so they would rather go unemployed for another eight months. But who knows where one opportunity can take you? I mean, my, I, you got to grab something. And unfortunately, there's a mentality, as you say, that makes people feel like, well, if I don't immediately have my dream job, then, you know, I, I don't, I don't want it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I,
1: I, I, you know, I could never have guessed that I would be where I am now. And I, I would have turned every job down in the world waiting for this one, but I couldn't have had this one unless I did those lesser ones.
0: It's, it's the cousin Eddie syndrome. You remember the, uh, uh, national lampoons Christmas vacation where he he says, uh, Eddie's been out of a job for four years. And she says, well, he's holding out for a management position. Yeah. (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, I, I always feel like that too, that, that you don't actually know what, what you're going to be doing in 10 years probably hasn't even been invented yet. So uh, there's no need to, to hold out for it. Um, so you are one of those rare, rare uh, intellectuals, rare academics who knows history and does history well and also understands economics. You don't approach history through this Marxian class warfare lens. You actually have a, a rational choice economic approach. If you had to pick, is economics or history your first love?
1: I think this may be a case of the grass is always greener, you know, on the other side of the street, because all my degrees are in history. I have no degrees in economics whatsoever. And I think I only took two formal economics courses as an undergraduate, so I'm entirely self-taught. I just read all the time.
0: It's amazing you can get a history degree with only two economics courses, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, <laughs> I know what I,
1: I mean. It was, it was a full-year course and a half-year course, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I studied it on my own. I, I read a, an awful lot of stuff, and I continue to do that on my own. And then, of course, my show and all the different things I do help to continue my education. But all my trainings in history, yet— Probably about maybe 10, 15 years ago, I started thinking to myself, you know, I think I would have been a lot happier if I had majored in economics. Just <laughs> That just seems more exciting and fun. But, but, you know, if I had majored in economics, I would have been pining for history. So yeah. well, it's just nice that I, I don't have to be... I'm not in academia where I would have to be pigeonholed. You're a historian of the 1920s or you're a hist- you're a cultural historian of the 1920s or you're a historian of international relations in the 1920s. That would bore me to death. I love being a generalist. I love being able to wake up and say, "Today I think I'll write about this," which is completely out of my area, but I don't I don't like ha- I don't like having such a narrow area. So I get to write about economics and I get to write about history and I don't have to play by the rules of academia.
0: realize that. I mean, you are no slouch in the academic world. Harvard, Columbia, you clearly knew how to succeed in that world, but academics are not big on popular stuff. They, to, to succeed in academia, it's primarily writing journal articles for your peers and things right. that are largely not for for lay audiences. When did you realize you wanted to do more than just that, that you wanted to write books like A Politically Incorrect Guide to American History, that you wanted yeah. to reach a broader audience. What, what was that transition like to, to say, wait a minute, I want more than just the academic circle?
1: And originally I did imagine that I would, you know, live my academic life according to those rules. And I, as I did write journal articles for academic journals, and I and I have written books for academic presses. Uh, the Church and the Market is Roman and Littlefield, which is an academic press. And my book, The Church Confronts Modernity, is Columbia University Press, which is a really nice, big, prestigious press. But, you know, well, the thing that makes you want to go into popular history are the sales figures for your academic books. <laughs> okay, I think I've made my contributions to the field now. <laughs> but actually, I'll tell you, this was a case where opportunity fell into my lap. This was before I, I really was entrepreneurial enough to say, you know, you have to make your own way in the world. You have to make your own opportunities. I was sitting around waiting for opportunities to fall into my lap, which— that does happen from time to time, yeah. and even even now it does, but I've become much more successful ever since I realized, wait a minute, I have some pretty good ideas. Why don't I implement them and see if they work instead of waiting for somebody to email or call saying, hey, I've got an opportunity for you. Well, anyway, I did get an opportunity in two thousand, uh, end of 2003. I actually got a telephone call from Regnery Publishing. They've been around since about 1947. They've all kinds of major conservative thinkers, Richard Weaver, Russell Kirk, all these great thinkers over the years. And they wanted to know, would I write a book for them with the title, The Politically Incorrect Guide to American History? I did not come up with that brilliant, brilliant title. Mm-hmm. That, that that title sells the book. And I th- thought about it, and I thought, yeah, okay, I could do that.
0: By the way, you're clearly somebody who earns his own keep uh, based on what you sell, because an academic would not like that title I don't think,
1: I don't think oh, exactly. the, no, the value of things
0: would... that sell is, is not very appreciated in academia. yeah exactly because
1: yeah basically academics for the most part know nothing whatsoever and don't even want to know about marketing and about entrepreneurship and about let me say it self-promotion. Yeah. Uh, most of them languish forever in obscurity, and they blame the world for this, and they become Marxists. But it's not the world's fault that uh, not everybody is interested in uh, the New England merchants of the 17th century. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, either you make that interesting or you do something else or whatever. You do something on the side, whatever, something. Yeah, yeah. So I got this offer, and I took it, and that that just fell into my lap, that opened a lot of doors for me because I was able to build up an audience via that book. And then I just kept on plugging away. And I'll tell you, I don't want to get into this in too much detail, but I took a lot of abuse for that well, book.
0: That, it, no, I'm, I'm glad because that was actually the next thing I wanted to ask. Oh, good. Okay, How did then you I deal with the, the psychological cost of, of professors and academics you know, not taking you seriously, oh, hating on fun. you?
1: Ha, it was great. Now, there were times that were very, very depressing. I'll get to that in a minute. But I had, I had academics all over the place uh, criticizing me. Half of them hadn't read the book, which made it even more fun. I, I was uh, one time I was accused of defending wars for oil. I thought, that is the exact opposite of what I'm saying, right? But they just assume that I must be like Sean Hannity. They can't conceive that there could be anybody
0: else. But it, it's a quick it's a it's a quick logical formulation. Tom, he wrote a book. For a popular <laughs> press, which equals profit, profit is associated with oil, therefore, you know. Yeah, yeah be- <laughs>
1: exactly. But but also, I think it's that right-wingers, so-called, that they, they assumed I was, uh, are associated with war. Yeah. So he must favor. And, and I even, I'm not kidding. I had people saying, look at the publisher that published this book. It's the same publisher that published Michelle Malkin's book, Defending Internment Camps, which, of course, I'm dead set against. So they tried to attack me for that. So I'm supposed to be responsible for every book? (laughs) This is so stupid, right? But anyway, the nice thing about it was that I do actually know my stuff. And I was able to write responses to these people that were read by far more people than the original article was ever read by, thanks to Lou Rockwell helping me to, you know, letting me use his site for that. And I eventually, on my own site, TomWoods.com, on my books page – I have, you know, I have a list of all my books, and on the page for the Politically Incorrect Guide, I have a whole section of my resp- my replies to critics, because they are some of my proudest moments. But I will tell you that when I, I was attacked by the New York Times in a, in a signed editorial on the editorial page, not in the book review section, wow. and in there, they did not say, well, here are all the mistakes Woods makes. I'm telling you, that is not what they said. To the contrary, they said, can you believe he thinks the Marshall Plan wasn't the thing responsible for European recovery well okay yeah I can believe that I said that because I, I was just relying on Tyler Cowan from GMU who wrote a great piece on this it's not it's not like I made this up but but also argue it with me you know debate me over it don't just say well he said an unsayable thing so therefore you know or he said this or that about the depression and okay but I have evidence, I mean, at least at least engage with it, but instead it was thought crime. They couldn't believe I'd had the nerve to mm. say certain things, so boy was I able to write a juicy reply to that. Now it's true, my reply wasn't read by as many people as read the New York Times article, but I had to remind myself of the following thing, and I learned this over time. After the New York Times and the Boston Globe attacked the book, I realized that the people who like what I'm doing Are only further emboldened by things like this. And people who don't like what I'm doing will forget my name by the next day. Hmm. And you know, you, you look at things like this and you think to yourself, Maybe my career's all over. I've just been attacked by two of the major opinion molding institutions in the country. Maybe my career is over. But then you realize unless somebody is totally obsessed with you, almost nobody who will ever be in your audience even knows about this. Almost none. You don't have to worry about in fact, I know somebody who, when Keith Olbermann used to be on MSNBC, he had a segment called "The Worst Person in the World." You remember that segment? The no, worst no. person in the
0: world. I try. I did... try to avoid news shows. The new shows, <laughs> well, <me> too, <laughs> new shows that make me grumpy.
1: But of course, but of course, the worst person in the world, you know, is like half my friends are the worst person in the world. <laughs> I never got that honor. But one of my friends was named the worst person in the world for something totally stupid, totally defensible. And he called me and said, "Well, you're the expert at being abused. What does this mean for me?" I said. It means you just won the Pulitzer Prize. This is only <laughs> going to elevate you in the minds of the people you're going for. And people who don't like you won't even be able to spell your name the next day. So I hate to repeat such a hackneyed uh, slogan, but it really is true. There's no, you know, you know, uh, all publicity is good publicity. There's yeah. no bad publicity. I, I don't think that's entirely true because if they said I belong to the Ku Klux Klan or something, that would be bad publicity. But but short of that— uh, I mean, think about—you can think about anybody. Like, there are a lot of people who are big fans of Ron Paul, and Ron Paul will get abused here or there. And almost never do they say, oh, yep, boy, I never thought about that about Ron Paul. They think, ah, typical mainstream media. Of course they're not going to like Ron Paul. And that's just what happens. And, and, you, and you get out—you you come out bruised, but you come out the other side okay. And basically, I did what Pat Buchanan, who's been through the ringer, has done— He doesn't really spend a lot of time responding to critics. What he spends his time doing is writing best-selling books. So I just kept doing that. I just kept cranking out the books, and I just kept having success after success. And it got to the point – I'll just say this. There were even some people in the libertarian world – I will not mention their names – who tiptoed away from me in the days – in the weeks following the book's release because, well, I can't have my think tank associated with this subversive guy – but I thought our whole movement was subversive, you know. But we, go, oh, we can't have this. And then when they saw that I wasn't going away, I continued to have some popularity. I kept churning out books. I was uh, on the speaking circuit all over the place. Uh, I had a huge number of YouTube views and whatever. All of a sudden, and, and, you know, Ron Paul's inviting me to speak everywhere. And I got, you know, it's just my profile kept going up. All of a sudden, they wanted me back. And they weren't scrubbing my names from their websites, and they were inviting <laughs> me to be on their shows. And I just thought, Isaac, let bygones be bygones. I'm not going to dance victory, you know, I have a, a victory jig at their expense. Uh, I'm glad that they want to be my friend now, but what really matters to me were the people who stuck by me during the darkest times when I really felt like it was all over.
0: Do you, do you ever use that as motivation. My, my wife never understands this. I don't know if it's a male, female thing, but the chip on your shoulder, you know, great athletes will do this. They'll, they'll remember the coach from junior high that told them they wouldn't be good. They'll remember their whole career and use that as motivation. D- do you ever, you know, without, without letting yourself get bitter and be angry, use that as motivation and kind of, um, you know, okay, these people are, are saying my work is crap or that, I'm you know, whatever I've, I've, I'm, I'm disrepute, you know, I'm not respectable anymore or whatever. Does that ever help fuel you?
1: Okay, uh, that's, you've actually hit on a really interesting sore spot. Uh, I'll, I'm going to answer in two parts. The first part is it gives me extra satisfaction when something is successful, but it's not the initial motivation. So I'll, I'll be honest with you. There is a part of me that's still a scared little boy, an insecure little boy who was the nerdy kid whom people didn't like because he was the nerdy kid, and he did his best to fit in and just didn't. And there's still a part of that in me. And when I get attacked, I feel like I'm, I'm transported back to those, those days. And so that's part of the reason that I hit back so, so devastatingly hard when I'm attacked, because you're, you're, you're getting to something that's quite visceral. Uh, it, it does give me satisfaction that people who you know tried to – I mean just said the worst things about – in fact, there was even a person at a top-flight libertarian think tank who wrote an article on me and put a picture of a Klansman in the article. Now that is, that is evil to the thousandth power because that is, the again, the opposite of, of the whole classical liberal tradition that I belong to. But it was an attempt – because there are institutional rivalries between think tanks – And I'm with the Mises Institute, and it was thought that, oh, here's a chance to sock it to this guy while he's down. Not really because they wanted to go after me, but because they wanted to go after the Mises Institute. That really hurt me. And, yeah, the fact that now— I have 10, you know, 12 times as many Twitter followers as this jerk, and and uh, <laughs> I get invited to all these big events Dude, to speak Tom, at. Tom, like yeah. you're like a
0: hip-hop artist. You're like a libertarian I mean, gangster. That, that, that that's does, what all rap songs are about, all the people that didn't believe in me, you know? <laughs>
1: that's right. I mean, that does give me satisfaction. But I'll tell you the thing that actually for a long time was kind of my muse, and I'm I'm going to come clean on this. I haven't really talked about this in public, but I think – the more you shine light on things, the the more the better you're going to recover from from you know bad uh, qualities that you have. And I will say that one thing that for a long time just haunted me, just haunted me, was the experience I had in junior high school. High school was pretty good because by high school I figured out that if I was funny, people could overlook the dorkiness. Mm. You know <laughs> that's okay. Like he's so darn funny that. It's all right that he's the captain of the math team. We can, we can <laughs> let that one go you know uh, For some reason in junior high I didn't fit in with these kids at all. and I'm not going to say it's because they were frivolous people and, and I was a sophisticated guy. I don't know what exactly the problem was, but I certainly was not supposed to be interested in the topics I was interested in and I, uh, you know, and I, I was an intellectual kid and, and I was interested in a lot of things and this boy they've just made my life. Absolutely miserable, absolutely miserable. And I never forgot that. I hung on to that. I kept that anger with me for probably, probably up till just a couple of years ago. And every time I would have a success, I would feel like uh, I'm not going to say any bad words on your show, Isaac, but I would think, you know, you darn jokers, I'll, I'll censor <laughs> myself. What do you think of me now? And I, you know, again, I know I sound like I'm a nine year old kid, but I had I was so bitter and angry about what they did to me. And the thing that got me over that was uh, I went to my 25 year high school reunion at the end of last year. Now, I've gone to all the reunion because, again, high school was great, but still there were people in high school who were they were the ones who tormented me in junior high. And I thought, you know, I've just got to slay these demons. So I spent the night mostly not talking to people I knew really well because I can see them anytime. But I, I sought out people who were in different groups from me, and the groups never interacted with each other because I, I, I can't be in their group. They, they do these things and I do other things. And I just went out of my way to introduce myself, talk to them, and I I discovered these are all great people. I love talking to them. And I went out of my way. There was one guy there who was the worst to me, the worst. And he had had a daughter who had had cancer, and she'd been in the hospital for a year. And I've got five girls, and that would just tear me up. And the first thing I did when I walked in there was I sought him out, and I said, I heard about your daughter, and that's just terrible. Nobody should have to go through that. We ended up having a great conversation to the point where after the reunion was over, uh, he and I and a few others went out for drinks. And and ever since then, I've been at peace with the whole situation. Hmm. So I got over that. But but that was an ext- – now, that was a motivation that really did get a lot of achievement out of me. But it poisoned me very, very badly. So I, although I have heard the slogan, hatred is my muse, I can't say that that's good advice.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, it, I kind of, uh, I kind of feel like finding a way to deal with the actual hatred for over over real things or real people that have offended you to not let it poison you, and then for the motivation, try to manufacture like grand narratives or arcs, like <laughs> sort of t- turn your life into to a mythical uh, battle to, to get that motivation. I don't know. Sometimes those are the the kind of uh, mind games that help me maintain bo- <laughs> the, the anger motivation without it sort of being real and directed at real people or in a way that, that I think will be damaging long term.
1: Exactly, and, and I will say that I, these days my main motivation is to try to help people break through the artificial limitations on debate that exist where they feel like I've got to be either Hillary Clinton or Mitt Romney or Donald Trump or something and those are the only choices. Mm-hmm. And I want to help them to see that that's really not and and that this conditions them automatically to reject really good ideas that just don't happen to fall into those categories and they're just they're closing themselves off to such helpful ways of thinking in so many different I hate to say policy areas. And I just want people to know you you don't have to stay on that plantation. You can you can be emancipated. You can run away. You can explore a whole array of wonderful ideas that we never got a fair shake at evaluating when we were younger. So that's the main thing that I enjoy doing. And when I get – and I get lots of emails from people saying, you know, I used to be a this or I used to be a that. And when I first heard you, I was enraged. But I started thinking, and I thought, you know, hey, these actually are some pretty good ideas. Mm -hmm. Well, then I feel like you know, what I'm doing is worthwhile.
0: So – I want to ask you about not just debate, but public speaking in general. So I saw you speak for the first time I saw you speak. It was, I think it was 2009. And I don't think I had read any of your books either at that point. Maybe I had read the politically incorrect guide. I can't remember, but I was blown away. I mean, I've seen a lot of speakers and I sort of, I'm very, I'm very objective because I do a lot of speaking myself. And so I've kind of, in some ways that when you do a lot of speaking and you're trying to always learn the art it kind of makes it harder to enjoy talks because you're always sort of analyzing the the art of the speaker and, and assessing it, seeing if you can pick up tips. And it's you're not you're not sort of just an audience member who's moved by it. I imagine it's like a filmmaker going to a movie. It's probably harder to just enter in and be moved by it. So typically, I'm kind of just objectively assessing. You gave just an absolutely compelling, engaging talk. I mean, truly, Tom, you're one of the best probably the best public speaker I've ever seen in person. Just the ability to engage the audience. You had a, a, you had some, some fire, uh, s- some rage, but a lot of humor, um, transparency. Clearly, it, it seemed very clear to me that this was not only natural and it wasn't only because you know your content really well. It was also something that you have very mindfully cultivated. It seemed like public speaking to you was an art form Is that something that you have chosen to to work on over the years? Is that something – did you ever get nervous about public speaking? Was it ever hard for you? How did you come to master that craft?
1: Oh, that's really a great question because I love talking about it. Well, as a public speaker, why wouldn't I? I have been doing public speaking I guess now for – probably 20 years now it doesn't mean that in the early years i was doing a whole lot of it but in terms of being in front of an audience uh, i had done it uh, by that point point. and i've spoken to audiences of really all sizes i was at ron paul's rally for the republic and that was many thousands of people at the target center in minneapolis that was such an unbelievable thrill and i'll tell you i soaked up
0: every moment of that it was so, so when you're great. up there on stage like that just energizes you
1: Oh it is unbelievable. Now of course you're it's a little nerve-wracking to be backstage thinking I'm about to speak to probably the largest group I'll ever <laughs> speak to and if I do a terrible job it reflects badly on one of the people I most admire. But go out and do it. <laughs> but uh, but I but I, I look back on that as maybe my favorite moment of all time because what energy – it turns out that it's easier to speak to larger groups than to smaller groups. And that sounds counterintuitive, but there's more energy with a mm-hmm. larger group. And secondly, if you tell jokes, small groups hesitate to laugh mm-hmm. because you know it's, it's, it's kind of like the same reason that if you're in a restaurant where they're not playing music in the background – if you've ever been in such a restaurant, you notice that just instinctively you start to whisper because <laughs> you feel weird. There's no noise in here. I better talk like this. And it's the same way with p- small group of people in a room, whereas the more people you have, the more likely there is to be somebody with a big guffaw who then gets everybody else going. And you get much bigger laughs, again, because of the energy – so I, I, if I look in, and there are 20 people in a, in a room, I think, oh, no, this is going to be like pulling teeth And I could still do a decent job, but I like the, the big, big crowds. Well, I, I would say I have not ever like – my typing, I would compare it to my typing. I never learned how to type formally. I, I only knew there was a formal way how to type long after I had – just started doing really fast hunt and peck, which is yeah, how that, I Yeah, That's
0: what that's what I do. I still hunt and peck, but yeah, my, exactly. my speed yeah. and accuracy are enough that it's never been worth it to learn to speak. Never type. been
1: worth it. And and I and to retrain my brain, I just don't think it would it would take. So I know I'm not as efficient as I could be, but that's the way it is. Well same thing with public speaking. I never sat down I mean after I started doing it, I realized, wow, there were whole books and courses on this, but I don't want to take them. Because so far, it's worked for me. And one thing that may have helped is that I used to do a lot of community theater. Mm. I loved being an actor on stage. So that gave me an ease and comfort in front of an audience. That's one thing. Secondly, I know people are there because they like what I have to say, and that makes it a little easier. So I do get more nervous before a university audience, because that could be a mixed group. i spoke at, uh spoken twice at the University of Colorado at Boulder, which is not exactly a stronghold for my views. <laughs> and... I walked in there. It was a Friday night. I thought, who the heck is going to show up for an economics lecture on a Friday night? The room, it was 250-seat place. It was – that was – there was not one seat available, and there were people standing in the aisles. Hmm. So, okay, and so they've come to lynch me or something. I, I thought for sure that's what's going on but i just gave the best talk i could and i was as deferential to people in the room who might disagree with me as i could be i answered questions in a very friendly way and i even got correspondence later from attendees saying you know i showed up intending to hate everything you had to say but you really made me think and i thought all right i really i'm getting good at knowing my audience and speaking to them i didn't give them the speech i would have given at hillsdale college let's yeah. say you know and and that also helps figuring out who the audience is. And for the most part, thinking to them, to yourself, these people are not my enemy. And mm-hmm. that's been hard for me, because for a long time, I've thought that people who disagree with me are my enemy. because was <laughs> I'm fighting this, this big battle for truth. And yeah, it's true. There are people who hold their views who frankly are enemies of civilization. But most of these people are people whose ex- personal experiences have made them simply more likely to accept the left liberal narrative. And mm-hmm. My personal experiences have made me less likely to accept that. That doesn't make them terrible people. They, they just haven't been exposed to what I'm saying. And when I viewed it like that and I spoke to them that way, it really made a difference. Also, I think a lot of the advice that people try to give you about public speaking is makes it so canned. <laughs> like you, know, you got to make this gesture or that gesture or make sure you hold eye contact with a lot of people. Okay, I violate all that. I do whatever hand gesture comes naturally. Uh, and in terms of looking at the audience, I can't do that. I can't make eye contact with particular people because it distracts me. So, wh-
0: so where there's... do you look? Do you
1: do – because you... I don't remember
0: noticing – have... I notice if people are looking up at the ceiling like some people do. No, no, Do no, you that. look between their shoulders?
1: Well, what I'm doing is since I have uh, – I'm nearsighted. So I see – if I take my glasses off, I see the audience as a big blur. <laughs> And you'll notice that I bet most people who listening to this who have ever seen me speak before, they may not even know I wear glasses because I never have them when I'm speaking. And the reason is so that... I can't see particular faces. So it may, I may be looking in people's <laughs> eyes,
0: but I don't know. So I and guess the, if you don't have good vision, you should wear glasses that make everyone look blurry. Exactly. <laughs> because
1: that way, you're not just, dist- you know, somebody might be picking his nose, somebody might yeah. be sleeping, and that might annoy you, and then you get off track, or whatever it is somebody's making a funny face, none of that can distract me. So I, I do it that way. But generally, I find the best thing is I never, ever write the speech out and read it. Because nobody wants that. There's nobody who wants to hear me do that. And I don't want to do that. I make an outline just to make sure I remember everything. Because I I, I don't want to step off and say, oh, I forgot that great section."
0: And do, you, and do you create a new outline for every talk, or do you have sort of a couple standard talks that you have outlines ready to, to go for, or how, how do you prepare? I generally
1: initially? have, I have some standard talks, but then typically, not always, but typically when they finally make it to YouTube, then I make up new talks, because I, I do think about people who... You know there are people who watch every single talk I give, and I feel like they're part of my audience too, and I want to give them something fresh. At the same time, there are only so many ways I can explain the financial crisis. After all, it did it did occur this one way, so I I I can't do everything. And in the same way, you have to think about the the position of the stand up comedian in the age of the internet. What is he supposed to have a whole new routine every single night? That's not possible. So I don't I don't make myself an impossible you know impossible set of goals. But, at the, but the, on the other hand, I don't speak as much as I used to. I probably speak once every two or three months now. It used to be two or three times a month, and this is largely because of family, and you know, you've got to give me a really, really, really good reason to leave my five children. Now, as they're getting older, I'm able increasingly to take them with me, at least a few of them. And that, and is, that
0: make, is so cool, isn't it? I've done yeah, that we a make times. a family
1: trip out of it. Like, In fact, I even took a few of them to Seattle with me for an event uh, a couple of weeks ago, and— we made a trip out, so we, we went to the Space Needle, we ate in the restaurant there, and we, we rode on the monorail, and we did all kinds of fun things while we were there, and they left thinking Seattle was a wonderful place, and even though this wasn't really a family trip, they all agreed it was fun, and they enjoyed it, and
0: hmm. so, you know, pretty good. So, so if you could give one TED Talk, you know, one of these 15-minute sort of talks, and that was the last talk you were ever going to give, what would the title be?
1: Oh boy, that's a good one. Because I've given a couple of talks that, if I if I got them down to fifteen minutes, would be that TED talk. Um, oh, I guess it would be. Uh, no, you know what? Let's come back to this. Okay, I, okay, I, yeah. got to think. So, because I can tell you what the theme would be.
0: Yeah, what the would the theme be? would
1: be? Because I'm not always a good title guy. I'm a good subject line guy for my emails, but I'm a terrible book title and, and lecture title guy. But the theme would be if, you know, if Walmart ran the schools, you wouldn't believe a word you were, you were reading in the history books. But when the government runs them, well, we just salute and we worship the people up on the wall and everything else. But I'm suggesting that we need to be skeptical. Because the, major, the, the narrative of history that we get basically trains us to believe that freedom is a stupid idea that can't possibly work. Yeah, 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 in the abstract, we like freedom. But basically, you need to be supervised in almost everything. Mm. Or you'll be unsafe, or you'll be uneducated, or we'll be invaded by the bad guys, or whatever it is. There's all we, or we'll have business cycles, so we need wise managers running things. I understand why people believe that, but, but there is no truth to it at all. And basically, we have been led to believe that we are helpless boobs, and we're not. Maybe the title would be "You're not a helpless boob After all."
0: <laughs> I was thinking something like "The secret they don't want you to know is that yeah. they don't matter." You know.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, something like but that. I, but yeah. I like
0: if you can work "boob" into it. I'm sure it would increase the. <laughs> it's the one
1: experience. of my favorite disparaging words.
0: <laughs> uh, so, uh, tell me about meltdown. This was this was your first New York Times bestseller, correct?
1: No, second. uh, Politically incorrect guide was five years. Okay,
0: so politically incorrect guide was a a New York Times bestseller as well. All right, well, well, congratulations on both of Um, those. When, if I recall, meltdown was the first book out after the crisis to describe the crisis. That was at least that I had heard of. That was well known. I mean, you, you shot every Barnes and Noble I went to, it was out there. It was on display. Yeah. This is a big yeah. deal. And this is a guy who's, whose academic background is history, self-taught in economics. When did you realize somebody needs to write a book on this and it needs to be me? Um, and what was that process like sort of becoming a default expert on the financial crisis kind of in the blink of an eye?
1: It was, uh, it was crazy, but In retrospect, I'm glad I did it, but while I was doing it, it was really brutal. Uh, It was really a brutal project because the publisher, you know, this is one of these cases, by the way, that sometimes when you're told no, I don't mean this in a sexual sense, obviously, but sometimes (laughs) when you're told no, you have to ask again, okay? You have to ask again. So the publisher said, I said, look, I think there should be a book on the financial crisis informed by the free market Austrian school of economics. This is a publisher that's that sold many, many books that I've written. And they came back with, now nah, we're not interested. So I actually doubted myself. I thought, okay, maybe it's a stupid idea. I don't know. I mean, they know better than I do. But then I thought to myself, wait a minute. No, that's not, how could this be a stupid idea? This is exactly what the world needs right now. And I think given that free market people are going to be on the defensive because everybody's going to blame the free market, they're going to be ready for a book like this. Well, my even before I went to the publisher, I thought Ron Paul should write this book because he has name recognition and some credibility because on the House floor all the way back in 2001, he said, we've just endured this tech bubble, which has burst, and now the Federal Reserve is replacing it with a housing bubble. And he said that on the floor of the House in 2001. That's amazing. So I thought he's got the credibility. So I actually called him up and said, I think the time is now for you to, to write this book. And it would be quick. It could be done quickly. And he said, well, I've already said everything I have to say on it, you know, speeches and articles. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he's Ron Paul. He doesn't even see what's before him. I said, Mm -hmm. that's why the book is easy, right? You just take your stuff. You add one extra chapter plus an introduction. There's your book on the financial crisis. And he just wasn't interested. So I said, well, all right, well, then what if I wrote it? Would you write the foreword? which is, in fact, what wound up happening. So I went and wrote it. But here was the thing, Isaac. This is why it was so miserable. The publisher said, and this is good marketing and, and uh, uh, good strategy on their part, they said everybody's going to write a book on the financial crisis, and let's be as gentle about this as possible. Most of them will be better known than you. So if you are going to be heard at all, you have to be the first book out.
0: Hmm.
1: Okay? So what does that mean? It means you have to write the book in one month. <sighs> okay, and, and I said, okay, I'll do it. And they gave me a modest advance on that book. In fact, why not? I don't think there's any, uh, well, I don't know. Would it be tacky to say how much the advance No, no, worked? no. no. I,
0: I'm, I'm really curious. I'd love to know. Okay.
1: It was only $15,000, which okay. in the world of publishing is not a huge advance. I took it because I knew I'd make the money on the royalties. Even if, I don't care about the advance. I'll make the money on the royalties because this book is going to sell and it turned out i was right and in fact that that year we actually paid off our mortgage hmm. that year now that's you know things have changed in the interim you know we've had some crises and difficulties but but that was a tremendous year. So, so
0: you it, wrote it, about how it, what was wrong with the, the home mortgage company, and it sold so much that you paid off your home mortgage. There's some sort of serendipity exactly. in here.
1: <laughs> Isn't that the irony <laughs> that I talked about irresponsible lending, and then I became the most responsible borrower in history? <laughs> that's basically. right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, so that was a short book. I mean, it, but it, it it went into the basics of the the background, some of the history about uh, housing policy. I mean, that's an went intense
0: into- one month. I mean, were you oh, just heads it, down all day?
1: Yeah. It w- well, it was, I was, you know, at the Mises Institute, I could pretty much work on what I wanted to. And when they knew I was working on this book, they said, oh, great. Yeah, sure. Work on that. Then I would come home, spend a few hours with the kids. And then after that, I would just go into my home office and just work and work. And I remember there were times that I just fell asleep in that chair. I was just so overwhelmed. And, you know, there's a part of me that thinks I put my family through a terrible thing. And, you know, that's... You know, I've I've gotten my act together on that. I'll just say that I've got my priorities right. And yet, the thing is, with that, the consequences were so. Good. I mean, it just it opened so many doors. It was so successful. But but if it were today, I just don't think I could do it. I, yeah. I I've really burned myself out.
0: That's interesting. And I want to I want to get into that in just a second. But before I want to sort of walk through the. So you are now. I would call you uh, an entrepreneur, an intellectual entrepreneur. You are your own brand. You're managing your own enterprise, and your your products are ideas, books, podcasts, newsletters, uh, curricula right. for homeschoolers, high schoolers, all kinds of people. So, so you're an entrepreneur. But that was kind of a, was this a gradual transition where first you were an academic and then you were working at um, the Mises Institute, which is a, a think tank or an academic sort of institution outside of academia, doing talks, writing books on the side, and eventually you sort of just went all in? Or was there a big decisive moment where you realized, I want to go out there and be completely independent of any institution and just build my own thing? What was, it, what was that transition like to, to being an entrepreneur?
1: Well, there was a big decision point because we were living in Auburn, Alabama. I was at the Mises Institute. I got a salary from the Institute. The Institute has been so good to me, I can't even put it into words, but yet I always felt like I wasn't pulling my weight. Now, I probably produced a book a year while I was there, so I don't know why I thought that, but no matter how much I worked, I always felt like I could be doing more, and I felt guilty taking their money. I I thought I could... I just felt guilty even though I... I did a lot of good things for the Institute, and I, I think I brought some more attention to it. And the Institute was mentioned on the front cover of, of at least two of my big-selling books. So it, it definitely – you know they weren't having me there for charity, but I still felt uncomfortable about it. I would rather be a benefactor of the Institute than somebody taking a salary. So I always felt uncomfortable about that, even though they never gave me any – the slightest reason to. They wanted me there. But around in 2010, we just decided that Auburn just wasn't working for our family. It, it's a it's it's a nice place, The college town though. It's not really a place you raise little kids. There's not a whole lot for them to do. So we ended you can, up. You can moving. only
0: go see Bob Murphy do karaoke so many times, right?
1: And yeah, and if if Bob Murphy lived in Auburn, that'd be one thing. But <laughs> but I I didn't get to see him that much. So so we we ended up moving, and we're actually we're actually going to be moving again. Thank goodness, because we we live in, for heaven's sake, Topeka, Kansas, and uh, nobody knows this yet. But we're well, few people know we're moving to Florida. How did you uh, pick Topeka, month. Kansas? Oh, I, I that's that's a question I refuse to answer <laughs> uh, because I ask myself that question over and over. And I don't look. I don't want to insult people who live in yeah in Topeka, yeah. but it's just a soul crushing place to live. And in fact, if you look at like there's this one mall and there's this downtown area where everything is this particularly off-putting shade of brown and i call it i i now actually call it topeka brown we'll be driving around i say oh i you know i like that house except it's topeka brown you know it's 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 just depressing being here well anyway when i got here you know i wasn't working i didn't collect a salary anymore so i thought well i guess i'm gonna have to take a lot of speaking engagements so i'm flying around the country like a maniac and doing a few other things on the side and i just thought this is not a way to support a family i have to be present So I, little by little, I started to think about, could I create a product based out of, I obviously have a following, could I create a product that my following would like? And a friend of mine suggested, well, why don't you do courses in history? I mean, a lot of people like what you have to teach about history. So I ended up creating uh, libertyclassroom.com, where it's history, economics, philosophy, logic, all kinds of interesting stuff, courses taught by me and by other people whose work I endorse. And together, like, we have a course on Keynesianism, I and mean, it's all kinds of great stuff. Uh, Brad Berzer from Hillsdale College is there, and we teach it the way we think it should be taught, mm-hmm. and there are courses you can listen to on the go and all this stuff, and you know, and we have question-and-answer sessions that are live, but it's all recorded. You can listen to it at your convenience, and that was a smash success. And this—it's it's funny. I was recently talking to an email marketing expert, um, Daniel Levis. I love this guy. He, he could— he, he like Bob Bly, another guy I like who writes advertising copy. He could sell you sand in the desert. <laughs> and and Daniel Levis, I was talking about you know my email campaigns to promote Liberty Classroom, and he was saying, you know I I just don't see the pain point in this product because normally the you know you you look for what is it that your prospect needs yeah you know yeah. what is the pain in his life and you talk about an appeal to that, but what is the pain here? Well, I don't know as much history as I'd like. That's not much of a pain point, or yeah. I, I keep getting beaten in debates you by don't left liberals. not have
0: the sort of felt need that you are Right, expect. exactly.
1: I mean, to me, it is a huge point that I can't beat left liberals in a debate, but not everybody will feel that way. And I said to him, yeah, I know. I know it feels like this project shouldn't work, but I got the numbers here, and it, it works like well, crazy. Well, what
0: do you attribute? I mean, you, you have a massive email list. You have a massive social media following. You're, you're getting downloads on your podcast. To what do you attribute the success of this?
1: Well, I think I'm good at it.
0: So I think you would it say the, the content is really the, the.
1: Because yeah, if I if I weren't if I weren't good at it, people wouldn't be following me for this long. Yeah. And I'm not saying that to sound like a jerk, but I think it would be silly for me to say, well, it has nothing to do with. Yeah, <laughs> the quality I mean, of I my product. I just figured out
0: this secret formula for marketing in right. my because content. Because I don't is want
1: cracked. to trick. I don't want people to be tricked into thinking that there's some button you can press. It's like when people ask Ron Paul, "How'd you raise all this money?" Because I want to raise it. Well, you have to hold these views and stick to them, and they walked away dejected. <laughs> where was my trick? There isn't a trick. But I mean, at the same time, you do get to a point where you realize there are, although there isn't some magic trick to go from zero to seventy-five thousand Facebook people, you know, overnight. There are things you can do. And one thing I try to do is to be synergistic between my different projects. So I released a book a couple years ago, uh, the first book I've ever self-published called Real Descent. And what I did with that book was I took one section of that book and I included transcripts of my best episode or episodes that I liked. And so the book promotes the podcast, but then the podcast promotes the book and then my newsletter promotes the book and then the book then promotes my Liberty Classroom, and then I promote the book through my Liberty Classroom mailing list, you know, when, when you get a snowball effect running like this, the results can be pretty good. And and, and 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 the thing is, even though I've had the Mises Institute's help, and obviously Ron Paul has been wonderful to me, I haven't had the, the help of the big uh, multi-hundred-million-dollar libertarian foundations. I, I don't get... Any money or recognition from them, they act as if I don't even exist, and that's fine with me. There's hey, a. You're, fashion- you're
0: probably better for it. I mean, it's, it's yeah. taught you to. If you rely on your consumers, way. then you please, then you're better at pleasing your consumers because you figure out what they exactly. value.
1: Exactly, and so I've done things like, uh, I mean, this is old old fashioned at this point, but to get opt-ins to my email list, I create eBooks. And you think, oh, I don't have time to write an eBook. Well, what I do is I take. I do transcripts of all my episodes anyway. I don't do them. I, I outsource that. But I find a common theme. So, for instance, I, I thought, Bernie Sanders needs to be answered. So I looked at episodes where we've talked about issues that he raises. Then I thought, all right, we're missing an episode on this, this, and this. So I did episodes on those things, took the transcripts, and made it into uh, an e-book called Bernie Sanders is Wrong. And I got, I got a lot of people joining my list because they wanted Bernie Sanders is Wrong. So it's simple. I bought Bernieiswrong.com. I, I put up a lead pages landing page there to collect email addresses and I send out the book automatically and then people are on my list and that that was a, a great success. and so I'll keep on doing things. that doesn't take that long. It's not that big of an expense, and it is worth it to get those people on your list. That's a great strategy. Use content you've already got. most people, even if you're just a blogger, you're not a podcaster. Most people haven't read all your blog posts. There's an ebook. Get them to opt in and then you can email them. And if you're saying to yourself, Not everybody opens emails that come from a mass email sender. You know, you look at it, you say, oh, this isn't a personal email. I'll just delete it without opening it. That is true. Open rates are a tricky thing. But once you have that list, another way you can reach those people, even if they don't open your emails, is through Facebook custom audiences. You can upload your email list to Facebook. Facebook will then find as many of those people as are on Facebook, and then you can advertise to them and reach them that way. All right, you jerks, you won't open my emails. Then I'm going to follow you around on Facebook until you engage with me.
0: It's amazing how many people who are really passionate about ideas, maybe they're already professors or academics, or maybe they're aspiring to, they have this patronage mindset that, well, if only some rich person or some university would just pay me to produce things, then I could finally produce things. And it's it's so sad the the opportunity we have today that so few people are aware of especially those who are sort of on the ideas side of the spectrum academics and whatnot
1: I agree completely I know some academics who I think ought to be much much better known than they are and I think their attitude was my old attitude which is oh well you know I guess that's the car those are the cards I've been dealt but that's not the case because you have to make it's not like I there was some automatic Thing, like I'm a robot, and I just know that. Well, I got to produce eBooks to build up an email list to market my products. I learned that. You know, I went out, I read, I read books, I followed people in marketing who are better at it than I am, which is most of them. And I, I realized I was humble enough to say this is a part of life that I don't know anything about. But now I've gotten to a point where I've gotten kind of good at it. And and with my email list, we have this move coming up, and you know, moving is terrible. But I. I'm still writing to my email list fairly regularly, and I, I've i learned from people about you know how to do that effectively, how to write to your email list effectively, and I was not doing it effectively before. I was not. but I, And, and the thing is, when I discover something about entrepreneurship or marketing, I want to share it with my audience, and some of my audience couldn't care less about that stuff. That's fine. So I make them into bonus episodes of the show so that, that these people can't complain. Look, you're already getting your five episodes a week. If I throw out a sixth one that's like that's okay, but to me, I feel like capitalism ain't just something that we say, "Hey, it works really well and it efficiently delivers the goods." I want to be part of capitalism, yes. <laughs> you know. I and and capitalism means marketing, advertising, sales, leads. You know, that's that's the the warp and woof of capitalism, <laughs> if I may put it that way. And I love it. I love every part of it. And I, what I've learned about uh, e- email marketing is that the biggest mistake people make is thinking. They should only email once a week or once every two weeks or heaven forbid, people will unsubscribe. If they unsubscribe, let them go. Mm. What you're trying to find are your diehard fans Mm. who are going to read what you produce. So I don't care that people unsubscribe from my list. More people subscribe every day than unsubscribe. So go ahead. If my list is not for you, that's fine. But I produce good content in that list uh, every day. And yet almost every day, I'm pitching something almost every day. But it's at the end and meanwhile there's been great great content leading up to this and then at the end I'll say now look this is the sort of thing you'd already know if you were a member of liberty classroom <laughs> okay nobody minds that or anybody who minds that is not worth your time that you gee i have a product to sell so i can support my children you know uh, throw me in jail right yeah. but what i do is i actually send out an email every single weekday and you will get the marketing gurus out there telling you boy don't you listen to woods okay well, if they want to go and say don't listen to Woods, that's fine. Meanwhile, I'll be happily depositing my checks in the bank that I'm getting from all the emails that I send. So they're wrong. Those people are wrong. If you know how to do it the right way, email marketing can be very, very – you can be very successful the more you email. I know a guy. This is no joke. Michael Cheney. I'll even tell you his name. No relation to Dick, of course.
0: Michael Cheney emails his – The shotgun approach to, to email yeah, marketing. The <laughs> shotgun, yeah, the
1: shotgun. Uh, uh, the peppering approach, we'll say. Yeah. <laughs> He, he emails his list four times a day, four times a day. Every expert in the world would tell you not to do that. You know how much he earns? Forty grand a month. Forty grand a month. You're going to tell him he's doing email marketing wrong? So I actually I did an episode of my show where I brought Ben Settle on. Ben Settle is one of these people I love because he, he ostentatiously does the opposite of what the gurus say to do, and he does tremendously well, and I've learned from him. So I have fun with these kinds of topics, too, on the show, um, and you know, and I've got a whole bunch of other ideas that I want to do on the show as well that I do as bonus episodes. Or I'll do—by the way, I, occasionally I do an episode on music. Not everybody who listens to my show shares my musical. Oh, that
0: was, that's so one like, of my quick hit questions I was going to get to about your music. Good, good. That-
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I make, I'm going to be making those into bonus episodes so that, again, people get their five Libertarian episodes, but I get to have my fun— you know, once every few weeks and, and so on. So anyway, yeah, I, I'm interested in in all of it. But basically, when I realized that I'm on my own, I'm not getting a salary from anybody anymore, and I've got a lot of mouths to feed. I got to figure out how to make this work. Boy, all of a sudden, you want to read every ebook yeah. there is. You want to learn about how do I do Facebook advertising? Um, and and you know, and thing is, I love going on webinars and just sitting there as an attendee. Um, like Rick Mulready is the expert on Facebook advertising. I've, I've learned a bit of it, but he's the real expert. So I went on his webinar, and I was basically throwing money at the screen. I, I want to learn exactly what his method is, and it's been tremendous. It's the willingness to admit that you don't know everything yeah. and the ability to find out the people who do and separate them out from the shysters who say they know what they're doing, but they're full of
0: it. That, that's one of those things that I stuck out right away to me when I started before launching Praxis, I was doing fundraising for a, a libertarian nonprofit organization. And so I was traveling the country and meeting with these really amazing self-made entrepreneurs, business people who were supporting these types of organizations. And from working with a lot of faculty and intellectuals, again, and I'm, I'm not saying I don't want to cast this huge broad blanket, but there's this tendency to want to be right and to make sure you can save face and prove that you're right in the intellectual sphere when it comes to publishing your papers and things like that. When I go meet with these entrepreneurs, you ask them, what made you successful? What? And they're always so humble about it. They're like, well, I think it was this, but who knows? I could be wrong. You know? Oh, well, it's because I hired somebody who knew how to do things better than I did. There's this hunger. To just learn and figure things out, and like the quicker you can find someone who's better than you, the better it is for your business. In some ways, it boils down to this question, because uh, you can it's you can
1: learn a lot on your own. It's true. You could you could you could find a lot of internet articles or videos and so on. But it depends on what have you got more more of time or money. And these days, given that I have five kids, want to be a really really super father for. In some ways, I have more money than time. And I would rather pay an expert $2,000 to teach me something over the course of six months than save the 2000 but be pulling my hair out for the next six years. But that's just me. I mean, other people may have a, a different mix of time and money and so on. But that's why I have not hesitated to go and hire coaches and get people who know what they're doing. Uh, and you know, and there have been times when I've said to my audience, I've used this person or my own mother actually. um uh, is being coached by a couple of extremely expert affiliate marketers. And she's built up an amazing affiliate site. Absolutely amazing Mm -hmm. that if she were on her own, it would have taken, I'm sure she'd be the first to admit, would have taken 10 years to figure out how to do that. And she's got it up and running in less than three months that's money well spent. And and again, just the willingness to say I don't know everything, I, I lo- that's a liberating feeling because yeah. I find it exciting to go into a, a whole new field that for me is pristine where I don't know a thing, and I can just sit there and let other people teach me stuff. And then I get so excited about it, I want to go teach other people, and then I realize not everybody who listens <laughs> to me gives a darn what I'm saying. So I, I, I reserve that for the bonus. But, but
0: I also think there's value to just being transparent about how you're running your business, and even if people aren't loving that, they, they kind of like that you're open about it, that you're talking about the fact that you're marketing things and that you're you're you know.
1: Yeah, actually, do you mind if I? I know we're running out of time, but do you mind if I jump in with a specific example yeah, of that? Yeah, please do. Because I actually had an episode where I took people through and I showed them how I earn money through the Ron Paul Curriculum affiliate program. I said I set here's the affiliate site that I set up. I bought the domain name RonPaulHomeschool.com which is much better than ronpaulcurriculum.com anyway. So I bought it, and then I put up a single landing page. Now, I paid to have it designed. I, I wrote most of the copy myself, but I paid to have it designed, worth every penny. I earned that back the first day that site went live. And the site offers three free bonuses, but only if you join through my link. The bonuses add up to 160 bucks worth of bonus, I and mean, they're good, and they're bonuses that are relevant to that audience. That's a schooling audience, so I give them Liberty Classroom for free. I give them the politically incorrect guide for free. I give them a course I created just for them, just for joiners through my affiliate link for free. So what I've done is I've taken a, a I've I've created a page, I've made bonuses that are relevant to the product, and then at the end, all the order buttons have my affiliate link in them, and then people contact me and they get the bonuses. Then I promote this. Through a combination of things, through free traffic, through you know my own blog or my my podcast, I promote it through Google AdWords. I can. There's no restriction in that program on bidding on the words Ron Paul. Hmm. So then I'm going to bid on them. So I bid on Ron Paul curriculum, and I'm the top guy on, on the searches. And my thing says um, 160 dollars of free bonuses. This link only in the description. Well, everybody's going to click that link. And then on Facebook, I can advertise to people who are both interested in Ron Paul and homeschooling. That's crazy. <laughs> so so I, I went and I just showed people step by step. This is all I did. The, I, this is exa- you're seeing the entire funnel, the entire series of steps that I followed, and this is how I'm able – I mean, now, I killed myself. I mean, I should never have done <laughs> this. I, 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 I created 400 videos on history and economics for that, uh, for the high school courses for that program, it was, it was, it really was soul crushing. Well, it really okay, was so,
0: off. Th- so that's actually a good transition into, I want to give you like five quick hit questions, uh, at the end. Are you ready for that? Sure. All right.
1: I love lightning rounds. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the first one is on, you've mentioned this a couple times. You tend to have be a workaholic. What's the single most helpful thing you've done to improve your work-life balance?
1: Um, I would say it's to open my eyes and and understand life better, Uh, and also stop feeling like I constantly need to be proving something to people. I don't think I have anything that I have to prove to anybody. The only thing I have to prove is to myself, is is my own decency, and reestablishing the work-life balance has gone a a long way toward doing that.
0: What music are you listening to today?
1: I am listening to... Uh, even though it's about a year old, I'm still – I can't get it out of my head. I'm listening to an album by Stephen Wilson called Hand Cannot Erase, loosely based on the true story of Joyce Carol Vincent from the UK who moved to London and then basically disappeared. She died, a young, beautiful woman. She died in her, maybe around age 30, and nobody noticed that she had died for about two years. Hmm. And he wants to know, how is it possible that you erase yourself in the midst of the big city? And he concludes that that's actually the best place to erase yourself, because if you were in a little town, everybody would come check on you. And yet nobody even noticed she was gone. It's haunting. But I like I like haunting music.
0: (laughs) What is your response when people tell you that you should run for office?
1: I have too many negatives that would be thrown at me forever. And it just would be an awful thing to endure. If, if I thought some good would come out of it, I would say maybe it would be worth doing. I just don't think—I think people are too optimistic about the results. They want, me to see, they want to see me in the debates, but there's more to a campaign than debates. And also, I have five little kids, and I wouldn't be able to see them, basically. Mm-hmm. And when I did see them, I would probably—since I'm, I'm human—I'd probably be irritable and not myself— and my first responsibility is to them. I'd be glad to help anybody who thought I'd be helpful, but that's that. I'm already doing everything I can do right now.
0: What's something that's well outside of your field that you love that not many people know that you love or are interested in? I think some people do know that I'm interested in it because
1: I, I, I do talk about it, but it, it's I, I, I thoroughly enjoy playing chess, hmm. and I even like to play competitively, but, the, but I, I basically, up until a few months ago, I hadn't played competitively in 15 years because I was such a workaholic, I would not allow myself even the innocent pleasure of that, and now I'm allowing myself that again because I want to enjoy my life, basically.
0: Who is your ideal podcast guest? Michael Malice.
1: <laughs> I knew I knew you were <laughs> going to say that. You... In fact, I'm about to interview him right after you and I get finished talking. Oh,
0: I love it. He is he is great fun. I've had him on this show as well. He's he's just because
1: I never know what he's going to yes, say. Absolutely, and he challenges me, but then at the same time, as a human being, what I love is the great combination. Is not only is he a good guest, but he's a great human being. Like I I had a you know I went through a really tough time this year that I'm just coming out of and. I could, I called him up on the, and I'm sort of, again, because of my insecurities, I feel like I can't share my problems with anybody because I'm the guy, I'm the perfect guy who has no problems, yeah, right. but, but, you know, I help other people solve their problems, but I don't ever have any, <laughs> and, and I, and I, and, and he said, you know, I think we should talk, and we ended up talking for like two hours, and if I hadn't been so tired, I was going to tweet out, there is no problem in this world so large that it can't be solved by a two-hour conversation with Michael <laughs> so
0: I truly cherish that. He, he would have loved that, too.
1: Yeah, he would have. That's right.
0: Uh, When do you think you'll run out of gas?
1: I'm starting to replenish now. Uh, Once we get settled in the new place and we're living in a happier place, I think I'll actually have more than ever. But I feel I love what I'm doing. I think it's exciting. It's fun. I learn something every single day from all these wonderful people I get to talk to. So I think I'm going to be doing this until – I think I'll run out of gas when I'm six feet under. <laughs> all
0: right. You have been incredibly generous with your time. I'm going to ask you a final question to, to leave our listeners with something um, that they can chew on or something that they can, can implement. What advice would you give for people who are becoming aware of all of the problems you know, in politics, culture, all the things that are threats to freedom? We're, we're in, a, in a world that in, in many ways is unfree. Um, and freedom is is always under threat. How do you how do you advise people to find personal happiness, to find personal freedom in their life, to to carve out a space to live free in an unfree world, so to speak?
1: Well, you know, I talked to T.K. Coleman not too long ago mm-hmm. on episode six six six, as it turned out, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, and what we were talking about there is. And this, by the way, this shows why there's a connection in themes on my show, where I do once in a while talk about entrepreneurship and, and figuring out what your you know, how, what what piece of the puzzle of the world you are and fitting yourself in there. And they fit together because a lot of times we, f- we do feel despair about everything that's wrong. And there isn't, a, I can't really influence the U.S. Senate. I mean, there are some things that are way too big for really any of us to do anything about, but... You can't just sit back and say, well, then everything's all shot and forget about it. You have a tremendous scope in your own life for creativity and to do all kinds of interesting things that even right now you can't conceive of. But there are ways to sit down. I'm going to be launching a new site. I keep saying this, but I keep having life challenges come up and now I'm moving. So sometime this summer, I'm going to be launching a new site dedicated to helping people do this, to figure out what is your area? You know, what is the thing that gives you satisfaction and can put food on your table. And once you figure it out, how do you create something out of it? And how do you let people know about it? And what are the steps? I'm interested in that because I've been able to do that and I've had a lot of success with it. And I really do want to show people, I don't have a coaching program that's $2,000. This will just be a free site. But I would say politics is not everything. It really isn't. And most of what happens in the world happens very much in spite of politics. The, The, you know, It's true that there's a lot of regulation that's out there, but the person producing the food you eat and the person producing the computer you're using and all these things, these are just people looking to advance themselves in the nexus of market exchange. And the the free market is incredibly resilient. It comes no matter what you throw at it. If you give it just a tiny little crack, it turns that into a wide open door. And you've got to let these jerks get you down. And and realize that there's so many beautiful things in the world, so many beautiful things that you can still enjoy, even though there's so many horrors going on. And the first thing is figuring out what am I here for? What can I do that brings me satisfaction? There are ways and tools to help you brainstorm that, and that's why I'm so interested in that these days. I feel like the non-aggression principle, I got that. I've pretty much mastered that. I've said everything there is to say about it. But now the, okay, so the state is making life difficult. What can I as an individual do? That's kind of the area that gets, gets me most interested these days.
0: And I'm sure you can find many, many inspiring and informative uh, items, books, articles, podcast episodes on this and so many other topics at TomWoods.com. Go check it out. Subscribe to the newsletter. Let Tom sell you stuff. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> Indeed. Tom, thank you so much for taking the time.
1: Isaac, my pleasure.